welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today we have Marla and Amy and Sensei. Good to have you, sir. Chris and Craig. Welcome, everyone. Before we get started, I do want to mention our nightly AA meeting. You can get there by going to zoomaameetings.com. The link is in uh, the episode description. That's a nightly meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern. I suggest being there a little early. We do top out at 100. Uh, You may have to sit and wait on someone to drop out if you come much after 9 p.m. Eastern, so I'd be a little early. Different people chairing every night. Good meeting, good meeting. Lots of different. Good recovery. I think our average recovery for our chairpersons is over 12 years average, so we get some good mature AA in our meetings, so uh, come check us out if you're so inclined. So where are we today? Number eight. Yes, sir. Let me. Did you notice that there are 81 verses and any numerical significance in the 81? Nine nines, nine times nine. Oh, how is there a significance? Yeah, nines. In the in the Orient, they don't go any higher than nine. If you have something with a zero in the number, um, then it's an insignificant. So, so when they're born, it's like they're one. Hotels don't have um, a, a zero on the, on the ground in the elevators. It's the same as why the black belts and the Oriental martial arts only go up to ninth degree. If you have anything with a zero in any of your titles or anything to do with your name or family, then it puts you in an insignificance. Huh. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of numerology, yeah. I think, in uh, India, China, Japan, a lot of the history origins of the history of Buddhism, they enumerated everything, I think, as a mnemonic device to remember everything. Oh. Eight of these, six of those, nine of those, 12 it was of those. The, it was the same with the Bible. Seven's, seven's supposed to be a, a yep. significant number for the Bible. Yep. You could read the Bible next, buddy. No, I don't think so. <laughs> We're not going to go there. It didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in my 81st year, so <laughs> I guess I'm ready for Taoism. Well, thank you for being with us today, Sensei. Sure. Uh, we, you got our questions we sent, correct? I've got them in front of me. Yes, I have. Okay, you want to? Uh, let, let's read the let's read the chapter, the uh, verse. I'll just read it from right. the uh, uh, Wayne Dyer book on change your thoughts change your life uh this is verse eight the supreme good is like water which nourishes all things without trying to it flows to low places loathed by all men therefore it is like the Tao. live in accordance with the nature of things in dwelling be close to the land in meditation go deep in the heart in dealing with others be gentle and kind Stand by your word, govern with equity, be timely in choosing the right moment, 
One who lives in accordance with nature does not go against the way of things. He moves in harmony with the present moment, always knowing the truth of just what to do. Hmm. Yep. You you want to... You, Would you like to you, hear the other one? Sure. Yeah. It's a little simpler in phrasing. Uh, the best way to live is to be like water. For water benefits all things and goes against none of them. It provides for all people and even cleanses those places a man is loath to go. In this way, it is just like Tao. <clears throat> Live in accordance with the nature of things. Build your house on solid ground. Keep your mind still. When giving, be kind. When speaking, be truthful. When ruling, be just. When working, be one-pointed. When acting, remember, timing is everything. One who lives in accordance with nature does not go against the way of things. He moves in harmony with the present moment, always knowing the truth of just what to do. Well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> we all wish we could live up to that. But, um, you know, in Zen, we say, people come and they say, well, I want to keep my mind still, which is the line in here. And we say, well, good luck with that. <laughs> because the mind is a monkey, you know, and it's going to drive you crazy. And so um, Zen teaches uh, is very much like Taoism. And in fact, this all sounds Zen. And most of what you learn about Zen uh, through Zen philosophy probably had its origins, much of its origins in Taoism. Because once you had Buddhism come from India, which again was very intellectually enumerating everything, analyzing everything to death, uh, you ran into this thing called Taoism. And uh, it was assimilated into what we now call Zen. Uh, the one major difference between Taoism and Zen, as I understand it, is that Taoism was not essentially transmitted through meditation. That is, the truths of Taoism were not transmitted through meditation, which is characteristic of Buddhism, or Zen Buddhism in particular. We say, you know, we can, my, my teacher, Matsuoko Roshi, used to say, you can talk all day and never make them understand. <laughs> but as Katagiri said, you have to say something. So in order to communicate any truth, you have to talk about it. So you have to reduce it to dualism because language is dualistic. And then you have to use dualistic language to talk about non-duality, which is you know where you get into a lot of the cognitive dissonance or contradictory dichotomous kinds of ideas. So what we resort to in Zen is meditation. We say, well, this is going to be confusing and screwed up and it's not going to be that's simple, right? Uh, but if you keep returning to your meditation on the cushion, you will clarify this matter for yourself. And then you will understand what these teachings are pointing at. 
as much as they can be understood. We say not even Buddha understood this, not subject to understanding in the ordinary sense. But you can be okay with it. You can live with it. One who lives in accordance with nature does not go against the way of things. So the monkey mind is stubborn. It's a stubborn thing. Um, there's a saying in Zen, uh, the horse arrives before the donkey has left. The donkey represents kind of our stubborn, resistant nature, not too bright, but set in our ways and very difficult to get us to do anything, make any effort. The horse represents the fast-moving, you know, uh, mind of um, insight, you might say. But this saying that the horse arrives before the donkey has left means that you don't get rid of all of these characteristics of our mind and being that we might consider negative or that we we don't like so much. Uh, you don't simply get rid of those and thereby become enlightened. So you don't. You don't change anything fundamental, in other words. Other metaphors are used, like the ox, the monkey, and so forth, um, to, to, illust to illustrate this. But in the midst of your ignorance and stubbornness and all the qualities that you inherited through your parentage and your DNA and the situation we have in culture and society, in the midst of that is where you come, in Zen at least, you can come to this kind of awakening. And my understanding is very historically and scholarly level is very poor, but um, you also had Confucianism uh, side by side, I think, with Taoism in China at the time. And Confucianism was very much a model of um, how to conform to society. One of the last uh, verses of a long Chinese poem from about 600, the Xingxing Ming or... Um, uh, says something like, uh, ministers serve their lords, children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial. Failure to serve is no help. And so that kind of paints the Confucianist picture, I think, of society as I understand it. But then it goes on to say, with practice hidden, functions secretly, like a fool, like an idiot. And an idiot in the original sense meant somebody who doesn't conform to society. It didn't necessarily mean stupid. It meant somebody's just out of the out of the pale. Like an like a fool, like an idiot, practice hidden, function secretly. So even though you're a minister serving a lord or you have parental relationships with your children and with your parents and so forth, this Zen practice functions secretly internally that where people cannot see it. It's not something obvious. It doesn't necessarily show. The absence of it shows very much uh, because you're always not in harmony with anything. You're always fighting and having difficulty serving your Lord or difficulty with children, etc. And it's not all our fault. You know, we all have, we're not 100% responsible even for our children or our parents. But nonetheless, practice uh, with practice hidden functions secretly, like a fool, like an idiot. Then he goes on to say, to finish up, he says, just to continue in this way is called the host within the host. The host within the host references uh, a model uh, developed by uh, Master Rinzai as guest and host. Uh, I think it's sometimes a uh, minister and 
you know, it's like self another, basically, self another. Uh, so the host within the host is the most intimate of all. It's where if you have the host and the guest, it's self another, obviously. And Renzi said something like, sometimes I take away the host, sometimes I take away the guest. Sometimes I take away neither, sometimes I take away both. So it's like the tetralemma uh, of logic of uh, it is, it is not, it both is, it is not, it neither is nor is not. It's kind of like a well-rounded way of looking at any proposition. So um, the, the differences between Zen and Taoism, I think, are less important than the samenesses between them. And that when you sit in meditation, what you're basically doing is reconciling differences, I think. And you're, you're sort of subtracting and taking away confusion that you have. So I think I've mentioned this before. Forgive me if I'm starting to repeat myself. I'm old enough that, you, you know, you're allowed to repeat yourself when you get to a certain age. <laughs> In uh, design and art, we talk of media as subtractive or additive. So an additive media is putting clay on a, on a an armature. I'm getting feedback, by the way. Somebody, somebody may have their mic open. Uh, putting clay on an armature to build a bust. A subtractive medium approach is chipping stone away like Rodin to reveal the thinker, reveal the sculpture. So I think what happens in Zazen with the medium of mind, we're immersing ourselves in the medium of consciousness by sitting still enough long enough. We're pushing the envelope of our own consciousness. And we'll come to this, I think, we'll most people will come to the same findings, conclusions, and recommendations as Buddha did and as the Taoists did. But in Zen, it comes from your own personal direct experience. And the teachings of others can help, but that's not the main source of your understanding. Any whatever trivial understanding we have comes directly in meditation. So with that, I just I'll take on the questions here respond to those unless somebody has a question that I just raised for you. Any questions, guys? Okay. So, number one, does Zen see the example of water any differently than Taoist thought as in verse 8? Uh, I think then, and I'm sure Taoism goes further with the same analogy. Um like Zen talks about the fact that water can change state. It can be frozen. Uh, and I think intuitively they knew somehow that the stuff matter was like that. It was somehow frozen, but it could melt. And the impermanence, which is stressed in Zen, I'm saying in those days before we had the kind of physical science that we now have, where it's commonplace for somebody to say, there's more space than stuff in this laptop, right? I mean, that's not a that's not a major controversial statement today. But in those days, it would have been because they thought matter was matter, you know, and uh, space was space, and matter existed in space, but matter was not space. So um, Zen differed on this. They saw more the conjunction or non-separability of opposites. 
this is part of what non-duality means. Having a non-dual view means you see one opposite as really complementing and defining the other. So when the two monks that were always debating these things in, in, in uh, Chinese history, one was asked the other to demonstrate space, or they talked about emptiness as being like space, and he kind of made a gesture with his hands. And the other monk grabbed him by the nostrils and yanked so that it, it hurt, and he cried out in pain. So he was showing that space. It's in it's inside as well as outside. There's no separation of space, matter, uh, stuff, um, and biological matter or physical being, and including pain. So Zen takes a very um, holistic and thorough view and talks about the fact that water will flow down, but water also goes up. You know, and it speaks of the evaporation of rain here. So Zen sees the full cycle of, uh, of not only water as being like that, but everything is like that. And everything can change state. Uh, and we, we've seen, uh, ever been in a, I've never been in an earthquake, but they say one of the terrifying things about it is the, the ground turns liquid. And wave, waves are running through the ground like like waves through water, and and you're standing, you're trying to not fall down, right? And uh, that's said to be terrifying to everybody because it takes away from you something you thought you could depend upon. You thought the earth is solid; you could depend on that. And when it turns liquid, it's horrifying, terrifying. But Zen recognizes, they say, uh, not a tile above my head, not a stone below my feet, or no toehold, as if, which is a truism, we're all actually floating in space. We're all falling through space. The planet is falling through space. So this is unnerving. But um, these are some of the conclusions that they came to on an intuitive basis. Uh, this this many centuries ago. So these guys were not slouches or slackers. They were penet penetrating. Uh, so all things can be liquid. And, and they, they talk about the elements. We say like um, one of the poems says, um, uh, the four elements return to their natures just as a child turns to its mother. Fire heats. Wind moves, water is liquid or water wets, earth is solid. So those are those were seen as pretty much, in a sense, absolutes. Uh, and they added the space and consciousness were two other elements. So you had six or more. You could, you know, different different uh, teachings added different considered different uh, aspects or properties as elements, fundamental elements. But in Zen, they were seen to be like a Venn diagram, all overlapping and capable of intermingling. And they talked about the senses the same way. They say eye and sights, ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and taste. All the objects of the senses interact and yet do not. Interacting, they are linked together, not interacting. Each keeps its place. So, you know, we've all had the experience of uh, seeing a flash of bright light that hurts. So the sense of vision and touch is suddenly combined. 
or a loud noise that's so loud we see lights, you know, uh, and so forth. So we know that the senses also are overlapping, like a Venn diagram. So I think Zen uh, would agree 100% with this, but they would carry it further if you have ask somebody to just do a dissertation on water as a symbol. Um, one of the old sayings is Zen is powerful because like the ocean, it is be, be beneath everything else. So all of the tributaries of all of the movements, including Taoism, all forms of Buddhism, all religions, really all philosophies, from a Zen perspective are seen like tributaries coming from different sources, having different paths and so forth, but flowing to the same ocean. And that ocean is where, where Zen people put Zen. Uh, Ramakrishna was a Hindu saint, 1850s, Calcutta. And he, he had a saying similar to that, which has to do with social relationships. He, he would say, I am the dust of the dust of your feet. Meaning I'm not, I'm not the lowest man on the totem pole. I'm the whole they put the totem pole in. Right? <laughs> so this kind of humility and social uh, relationships is characteristic of Zen. Uh, this is why so many great masters refused the purple robe of the government. They didn't want to be associated with some kind of status. Um, and really why Buddha touched the earth uh, during his temptation of Mara, where Mara was elevating him to the status of a god. So he touches the earth to say, no, no, this is very ordinary down to earth. So humility, that's the role that humility plays in Zen. It's... Uh, I'm, I'm working on my uh, latest podcast is for a quartet of four segments, about 15 minutes. One is pretty long, 20 minutes, on the Lotus Sutra, which is attributed to as Buddha's last teaching. And one of the points I make in there is that when we are confronted with these teachings, we, we read them and we find, oh, I thought I thought I made this up. I thought I had this insight. And here's here it's being said 2,500 years ago. You know, you're sort of gobsmacked with humility. You're humbled by these teachings because they just seem to capture everything. Like, you, you, you know, if you try to come up with something new around the teachings of Buddhism or Taoism or outside of them, it's going to be really difficult. The Dalai Lama said, points out that science is capable of that. And if science comes up with something that uh, seems to contradict the teachings of Zen, Zen has to, or Buddhism, Buddhism has to change, not science. And so we have that kind of humility, I think. Um, so I, I, I was trying to make the point that one piece was about compassion. And I took the point of view that compassion is not a choice. Compassion is a fact. And you either experience compassion in the sense that you are the receipt of compassion just by being alive uh, or in the sense you don't have real compassion. You can practice compassion. You can try. But until you wake up to the fact that you are the recipient of compassion of the universe to allow you to exist, it's not really, it's not real compassion yet. And once you do, you have all the compassion there is. So it isn't like you have to work at it. But it also doesn't necessarily mean that you do anything 
that seems compassionate to help another person. It's not a cop-out. It's just saying that it has to be balanced with wisdom. Sometimes what you think is the compassionate thing is the last thing they need. And, and you guys in recovery know, know that very well, right? So I was saying, I was trying to make the point that humility is like that. It's not a choice. It's a fact. Uh, Sensei, can you uh, talk about that a little more? You lost me on the compassion. Uh, I, I need I need a little more. I need a little more. Well, most of us, most we think we call the Buddhist teachings the compassionate teachings. That could be another. That could be maybe another difference with Taoism. Taoism is not sort of that compassionate. It's more sort of brutal. And here it is. Take it or leave it. Too bad if you can't come into harmony with the way. You're bad, you know. And you're gonna, you're gonna, woe be unto you. <laughs> Buddhism is called the compassionate teachings, and yet when you look at them, they don't look very compassionate. There is the existence of suffering, and you are to fully understand it. That doesn't sound very compassionate, right? It's just putting it on you, and then uh, it mostly comes from your own craving. That doesn't sound very compassionate, etc. So compassion sometimes looks like cruelty. The old Zen priest beating his monk with a staff is trying to help him wake up. You know, today you'd be arrested, you'd be put in prison. <laughs> so compassion literally means suffer with. Calm means with. Passion means suffer. Suffer. So suffering with means that we're all in the same boat. Uh, it doesn't call on us necessarily to do anything for somebody else although that's the way it's been interpreted throughout history. And um, we, we, we come to, it has to be balanced with wisdom, primarily the wisdom that what you can literally do to help somebody else is really very little. You could feed the hungry, you can clothe the naked, you can house the homeless, but that doesn't necessarily help them. Uh, many times those efforts come to naught. Uh, the, the, the homeless person, the hungry person, the naked person has to, just as in recovery, has to want to change, has to, uh, I, I know some homeless people in this area and I, I try to work with them. I'm trying to put together a program of meditation for the homeless and, um, they themselves tell me, they say, once you're in the life, it's very difficult to leave. You get used to being able to live this way. And it's much harder to go back into what we consider a good life, a better life, having a job, you know, uh, having a place to live and so forth, pay the bills. That's not 100% appealing. Uh, if you can make it without having to have a nine to five job and you have a bunch of friends in the homeless network, um, you don't know what you're asking a person to do to leave that behind. So compassion is more recognizing that you're not so superior and so independent that you're not suffering. You know, it's like having compassion for somebody on the deathbed. Guess what? Your turn next. You know, I mean, compassion, first of all, rec means recognizing that you are an addict if you're treating addiction. You're also an, an addict. You may be a different kind of addict. You're addicted to something else, but you're not not an addict, and so forth. It, it, has, it has a certain uh, edge of honesty to it. 
And so Buddha, Buddha's, te- Buddha's actions and his, the actions of his followers in India, China, Japan often looked very cruel. But it was more like tough love, mother, mother love, or not mother love, I guess that's smother love. But, you know, um, tough love. Make sense? Yes, thank you. I'll, uh, the idea of compassion being suffering with is, uh, is good. Uh, I haven't thought about it in that light before, but that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. If you have a relative on the deathbed, yeah, you know, you, you want to do everything you can to help them, but there's very little you can do. But one thing you can do, Nadao De Ching somewhere says, in terms of family, just be completely present. And that sounds simple, but if somebody's, is not simple. It depends on the situation. Yeah, just hanging out, you know, uh, together and enjoying each other's company. I happen to have good relationships with my siblings while they, when they were alive. But, you know, like they talk about the Thanksgiving dinner and everybody gets embroiled in politics and things. It's very difficult to just be completely present, especially if somebody's sick and dying. But if you think in your in your own head, if you were on the deathbed, would how would it be then? You know, it, it wouldn't be the same at all. You'd be fine with it. You'd be a lot. If, if somebody else is on the deathbed, especially a child younger than you that you're trying to save, that's extremely difficult. So does Zen teach contentment? The Metta Sutta says, may all beings be happy, right? May they be joyous and live in safety, all living beings, whether weak or strong and so forth. Uh, but Buddha, this is attributed to Buddha. Uh, they had grown to such an extent at that time, the backstory goes, that they were beginning to affect the ecology of the, of the forest that they lived in. And so the trees were unhappy meaning they were probably dying, shedding bark, and, you know, they were undermining the ecology. So he gives this sermon about may all beings be happy, the first, probably first ecological sermon recorded in history. I don't know, there may be something in Judaism going back even further. But um, he didn't, you know, he didn't have rose-colored glasses. Buddha taught aging, sickness, and death as the inevitable marks of existence. Uh, like it or not, take it or leave it kind of thing. So he didn't mean may all being be happy because we're going to change everything so that nobody dies and everybody goes to heaven and all the animals, uh, wildlife as well as uh, livestock uh, end up in old folks' retirement homes instead of in the slaughterhouse. He didn't mean anything like that. What, he, what I think he meant was something like may all beings be happy with it as it is. That is, being able to accept the other teachings of aging, sickness, and death as being natural. This is, there's no other, uh, there is no other existence without, that doesn't involve change. And so um, he wasn't leading people down the primrose path. He wasn't overly optimistic, but he also wasn't uh, pessimistic, just realistic, you know, taking a realistic view. So um, contentment in just is just being yourself, but in in Buddhism we say, yeah, I'll take a close look at this self, you know, uh, see if you can really find it. So the 
you know, the idea of being yourself and just being happy in the moment is called the Zen sickness of falling into the moment. It ignores past, present, and future, the three times, and it ignores karmic consequence across those times. So we train ourselves and others in Zen to learn how to reside more in the present than in the past, like ruminating over our our past uh, failings and so forth, or having too much anxiety and planning about the future. But, you know, the only place you can take action is here in the present. So that's a very practical teaching. But it doesn't mean that you think, you then think that as long as I'm in the present, I'm enlightened, you know, as long as I don't, you know, worry about past and future, somehow that's what Zen is offering. Uh, the saying is that if that's what Zen were about, it wouldn't have lasted 2,500 years. It has to be more than that. So being in the present it also means being presently aware of the teachings of Buddhism and their reality, reflecting on reality to see what it really is and being mindful of that. It doesn't mean just being mindful of the present moment. That's called mindfulness, you know. But mindfulness in Buddhism asks the question, mindful of what? Just whatever is happening at the moment, you know? I mean, uh, how, what does, where does that take you? So it's more like being mindful that existence, the you cannot avoid aging, sickness, and death. You cannot, you know, all the teachings fall into place to say, this is what we're mindful of, and so you become naturally compassionate, compassionate, because you have you have the big picture, you might say. So contentment would not be in just being ourselves, but in waking up. We we're not contented. This is called uh, dukkha, means unsatisfactoriness. It's the unsatisfactory nature of existence that Buddha pointed out is the main meaning of dukkha. And of course, it's mostly a human a human feeling. I mean, chickens, cats, dogs, and cows, they're probably pretty content with things as they are until they're in a fight or get their leg in a trap or something. Or they go to the slaughterhouse like a cow or chicken. That's, that's not happy. Uh, but... Um, it's not contentment in that sense. It's content. It's it's being discontent, discontented with our own ignorance, and not being happy until we penetrate it, until we get through it, and we have this awakening experience, and we all have it to a certain degree. We all woke up this morning. We were asleep. We know the difference. Zen simply says we're still asleep and we can wake up and we will know the difference. So I think these teachings are really pretty, pretty simple. So let me pause there for a moment before I go on to number four. Pause that it should be. It's related to contentment. Anybody? Marla? I just, the teachings are all so similar. I've, I've also been studying yeah. yoga for a long time. Yep. We talk about dukkha a lot, but they're all, and they all seem to um, happen around the same time, 2,500 to 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That was what's called the axial period or something when 
all these things were happening in Europe and all over the world. It seemed strange coincidentally at the same time. It's like uh, the human race uh, achieved a certain awakening. It's sort of akin to the Enlightenment in Europe later. Some people theorize that that's when the uh, corpus callosum, the bridging, the bridging matter between the left and right brains completed in evolution. That's when it first joined. And before then, the people heard voices. That was actually, you were hearing voices coming from the other side of the brain, you know, back and forth. There's, there's a lot of theories around that, that something happened, something big, big deal happened in human evolution around that time. First I've ever heard of that. That is amazing. It's, it's like a 500-year period or something. I think it's called the axial period or something. I can't remember. I'm going to Google it, of course. After. You can Google it and probably find something on it. Yeah. But yeah, the teachings are very similar, but the pedagogy is different. In Zen, we say, just sit, just sit still enough, long enough. Uh, you, you already, in a sense, you already know this. You have forgotten it. <laughs> part of what, part of mindfulness is remembering. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? You know. And so when you sit down, you kind of go through a regression back to more original mind that you, that you had as a child, two or three years old, where you're fully conscious, but you weren't so full of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, those ideas are what are getting in the way. They're like a wedge issue between you and reality. So the Zen formula is very brutally simple. If you can just get yourself to sit still enough, long enough, all of this stuff will start to reveal itself to you in the same way it did. You had the same material to work with. You have the same equipment that Buddha had, that all the ancestors have had. And so you just have to go through the, the effort of sitting down and doing it, confronting it, that they did. I don't have a Bodhi tree, though. Really <laughs> all, tr all trees are Bodhi trees. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. <laughs> yeah. They have internal wisdom. So, so simple. Uh, so if I, oh, yeah. I, I was going to, in the just sitting, uh, this this chapter says, this verse says, live in accordance with the nature of things. So as we sit, yeah. we're learning to, that. that's how we see the nature of things is through sitting then. Yeah, because we have reactions, we have knee-jerk reactions to everything that we've been trained in. It's not all our fault. And so we interpret things based on sort of unconscious precepts that we carry. You know, like everything is supposed to go my way. That's precept number one, right? <laughs> and when it doesn't, then we have a reaction to that. So it's the why me, Lord, uh, you know, I'm doing everything right, and yet I'm still suffering through all these problems and not of my own making and so forth. And that that evolves to something like, well, why not me, Lord? You know, why not me? I mean, what's special about me that I that I should not suffer when everybody else so obviously is? So, it's, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I think of it as a maturation process, like grow up, sit down and grow up, you know, kind of thing. Great. 
I was just thinking with um, what you were saying about we have the same things that the ancestors had. Same I equipment, think, same material yeah, to work with. I think I kind of suffer from the opposite. I think I've got far too much. So yeah. it, distracts, it distracts me from being able to sit and sit with myself and sit in silence. Yes, 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 it's true. Matsuoka Roshi would often say, civilization conquers us. You know, we have so much information. We have so many choices. We have all this crap coming at us all the time now. They didn't have that in those days. They were in a village. You, your ecological sweep out, as Bucky Fuller called it, how far you would get in your life geographically was pretty small by comparison. And um, it's not necessarily a good thing. I think the COVID, the, the uh, pan pandemic has taught a lot of people, I don't need all that crap. You know, I've I've survived for a year now uh, with everything else horrible that was going on in politics and everything. And you know what? I don't need much more than what I've already got. I don't need that crap, you know. So um, civilization conquers us. But in another way, it, it's we have a huge advantage over even Buddha. Um, Matsuoka Roshi said, your enlightenment will be even greater than Buddha's. And people say, well, what do you think he meant by that? I said, well, you know, maybe the 2,500 years count. Maybe there's a cumulative effect where we are so enlightened in the ordinary sense of knowing so much more about the reality in which we live. They didn't have telescopes where they could see galaxies at a distance you know they didn't have anything like that but i think all the flat earthers were in europe i think the eastern people in china and and, and so forth the, the buddhist people had a, a much uh truer conception of what was going on here because a lot of the teachings even from india and 2500 years ago talk about the other worlds and the people in the on the other worlds and the bodhisattvas and buddhas from the other worlds come here to listen to Buddha. So there are hints in there that they were not flat earthers, that they had a, an intuitive, a larger sense of what was going on. So I think we want to we treat it like that. We want to think, well, yes, this makes, in a way, this makes it dip, more difficult for us to simplify. We've got so much more crap, so much more baggage, right, than a person would have had 2,500 years ago. But uh, if we can take that as a positive thing, okay, hit me with your best shot. I'm up to the challenge. I'm going to try it anyway. You know, and and what what happens? What you see is in, in the in the process, the natural process of settling in and settling down that you go through. The multiplicity of the information, the sheer mass volume of it, doesn't count for that much because most of it is in the same kind of categories, like. Um, some Zen teachers say, imagine just a mental uh, set of pigeonholes. And so, and they say, label your thoughts. And so what they're talking about is when you're sitting there and you have this thought come up, if you observe it dispassionately and just pay it, you know, as you, as you observe your breath, you're, you're not intimately involved with your breath. You don't prefer one breath over the other. You don't, you don't think one breath is more important than the other. The next breath is always the most important, of course. 
but with your thoughts, you, we have preferences. We discriminate you. I want to think beautiful thoughts. I want to have Bob Dylan say, I want to see better things and think better thoughts or something like that. <laughs> Bigger thoughts, you know. But when you sit for a while, you begin to see that the monkey mind is simply playing, playing the list of favorites, right? Going through the top 10 again and again and again and again, over and over. And so you begin to recognize that here's the same old thought coming around in a slightly different guise. And so you begin to lose interest in it. That's that same thought about family, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, money, job. You know, how many, how many pigeonholes can you possibly have to categorize these thoughts? You know, maybe a dozen. If you're Einstein, maybe you have two or three dozen. But most people are only going to have maybe a dozen pigeonholes. So if you notice that these same thoughts, you just put it in that pigeonhole, that goes in the family pigeonhole. Uh, after a while, it's not so entertaining or distracting. It's just, it just sort of uh, the dog chasing its own tail again and again and again and again. But what that allows you to do is penetrate to, say, a deeper level of thought. And you can ask yourself the question in Zen, it says, what is the thought of enlightenment? What is the thought of enlightenment? So I, I, I know that's discouraging, but I wouldn't let it discourage you. Okay, anything else on that? So number, so number four, four here, here, how are we doing on time? I hear an echo coming back, 15 minutes, okay. If I recall from prior comments, Zen does not teach that all is as it should be. How does one who follows Zen find contentment in everyday life if they see things that they find unacceptable? You take action. Uh, you know, Zen is a way of action. It may not work. It may make things worse. You have to take a risk sometimes. You do what you can. Um, it's Zen is not, and Buddhism is not an, uh, a teaching that you use as an excuse for not trying to help. I think that the most important thing we can do for others is to help them learn how to practice meditation, to help them uh, learn what the Dharma is pointing at. So what I'm doing with my life as a Zen teacher and uh, the activities I'm doing, I think that's the best I can do. I think other people are going to be a lot better than I am at feeding people. They're going to be a lot better at clothing them, finding housing and so forth. Although I want to help with that. But um, it, that's, as I was saying before, the unsatisfactoriness being a fundamental definition of dukkha, it's all unacceptable. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, uh, you know, even if you think about something like, well, I love I love chocolate. I, I'd like, I love to have a brownie with my coffee in the morning. And this is an example that's pointed out in Zen. In San Francisco, one of our guys told me they have this experiment they do around the senses where they have you put one potato chip on your tongue, but you can't chew it. You can't swallow it. You just have to leave it lying there on your tongue. <laughs> and after a while, it's like, oh, my God, you know. I don't want this thing on my tongue anymore. So you might have a craving for potato chips, but but it has to do with that passage of that potato chip into the throat within a few seconds, you know. So 
if you're crave if you're gourmand and you're craving wonderful food and food of all different flavors and spices and and you you go out to restaurants and spend you know too much money on fine wine and food think about how long it lasts <laughs> how much is that costing you per second or per or per, or per minute so um everything is unacceptable in that sense it doesn't last it's impermanent it's imperfect it's insubstantial those are the three marks of dukkha so however that doesn't mean you know panglossian best of all worlds that you could design a better world we can imagine paradise without aging sickness and death and the christians teach that this uh i'm on a interfaith panel every month with uh christian ministers islam uh imam um uh, hindu teachers sikhism and they actually teach that at some day you know the world is going to change and it'll be taken over by 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 jesus and and we will all live without dying and sickness sickness and aging and i i want to ask how how is that going to work i mean you know, from a Zen perspective, these things are built in. But the answer is always you just don't un you don't understand the mind of God. The mind of God is not something we can understand. So we can't we can't understand this. So that's acceptable. And we say in Zen, we say even Buddha did not understand what he discovered. So we try to explain it, but it's not explainable. But yeah, everything is unacceptable, and the teaching of Buddhism is not meant to be held up to say, oh, that's just their karma, you know. They're suffering because they're being, you know, it's genocide. We call it genocide, but they must have done something really bad in a past past life. It's not like that. It's not an excuse for inaction. So it's not an easy place to be here on the razor's edge, uh, which is the title of my next book, by the way, <laughs> The Razor's Edge of Zen. So any more on that one, number four, and then I'll follow up with Maria here. Or Marla, I'm sorry, Marla. And say my mic is echoing, so I'm going to let Craig finish up for us. Thank you, sir. Hey, anything else, Craig? Before I go on, no, I think that's I think that's covered quite a lot of it. It's, 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 again, it's just another one of these things that's just mind blowing. It is. It is. The reality is mind blowing. Then it's called simple. You know, uh, it's the most irreducible simplicity of method just to sit still enough long enough so that stuff dawns on you right the 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 great faith or or belief if you will in zen is that we all have this capability we have the material we have the equipment uh we have to make the effort and but it can be done we can have the same insight realization that the ancestors had and you can argue whether they really did or not, but if you look at the history and what the the legacy they left us, including my teacher, it's undeniable that these this was different for them. There, it's not your usual run-of-the-mill philosophy or something. So follow up from Marla. For me, Zen philosophy teaches me to find equanimity in any situation. So I'm neither attached nor detached to things or situations or words people say to me. If we feel an egregious wrong is being done and we find it unacceptable, when the sense of right and wrong comes in, 
we can still be aware and even angry. Maybe it's accepting that shit happens every day, finding contentment and acceptance. How? Well, I think uh, the, the place to start here is with this idea of being angry. I'm sorry. Did I write that? <laughs> Whoa. If you're Marla, yes. otherwise somebody's <laughs> attributing to you. <laughs> Would you like to hear it again? So, no, 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 no. I, I recall now. Go ahead. <laughs> I think if we go to this thing about being angry, can we still be aware of it and even angry? Anger is not always ego. Anger is sometimes, and probably most often, an altruistic kind of impulse to defend something that we find threatened and that we feel is worth protecting. And people get in arguments over Zen and over how we should do it, what we should do. In design, we have what we call design argument. We're, do, we're developing a project for a client and we're yelling at each other. Uh, when I left a large company I was with, I, I uh, set up my own business and for some time we operated out of our home. My wife had to leave. She couldn't stand it because you're in there yelling at each other. But you're, it's like you feel strongly about something. You're defending your idea. You think it's the best thing for the client. Somebody else has, has another idea. And so we think it's best to thrash that out and then you will get the best solution eventually. Okay, if you can come to consensus, not exactly consensus, somebody has to make the decision. But uh, anger, kids run in the street, mom's angry. Uh, why? Um, not because there's anything wrong with the kids being kids and the street being the street and so forth, but a car can run over them, you know, and they, they're so stupid and young and immature that are stubborn that they 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 don't know that or they won't conform to that truth. So she's angry, but it's, it's not ego. It's more, she's trying to defend somebody else. It's altruistic. It's doubtful whether animals become angry in the sense that human beings are capable and certainly not sitting there ruminating over and carrying a grudge and so on. Although the way these cats behave around here, you think sometimes, you know, this, the the house cat who's this she knows this is her house and the other cats come in she's pretty res resentful about it you, need to, you know otherwise there wouldn't be the swatting and slapping and snarling but it, i doubt that it's what we mean by anger but anger is usually i think justifiable uh, even in philosophical situation or politics people became very become very angry in politics but it's it's not the way it's being portrayed these days as, as uh, just bias. It's more like, no, I'm trying to protect something. If you think of uh, what we call progressives or liberals, and then you think of conservatives, for instance. I say, from a Zen perspective, we look at those as just labels. And what we call, who we call a conservative is somebody who wants to liberalize certain things. Typically, the, the typical conservative, as we understand it, and I think this is really oversimplification, the conservative wants to liberalize governmental regulation. The conservative wants to liberalize, um, you know, markets. You run down the litany. Uh, instead of speaking of it as conservatism, you can see that they're trying to liberalize certain things. So they're liberals. 
just what they want to liberalize is different from what we say a liberal wants to liberalize. Then, on the other hand, a liberal wants to conserve certain things. They want to conserve the Bill of Rights. They want to conserve human dignity, blah, blah, blah. So there's no such thing as a conservative or a liberal. And uh, when we allow these labels to uh, define us and we react in anger, I think what we lose sight of is what we are what makes us angry is that something is being threatened that is worth defending and people go to war and die uh, for the sake of defending these liberties and so forth so um when the sense of right and wrong comes in we can still be aware and even angry yes and you can think uh, one of our practice leaders now retired in Wichita, she she trained here for a long time. And she would come and say, Sensei, um, you know, she would she would do everything. She would clean, clean, and just take care of everything. She was really well trained. She trained at Shasta Abbey. She trained in Europe. And then she started coming to Dokasan and saying, Sensei, I'm doing all these things, but other people don't do these things. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not taking care of business. So she complained complaining a little bit. And I said, well, you know, if you if you didn't do them all the time, maybe they'd have a chance to. Maybe you need to step back and let them step forward and do something. So she told me that uh, she started developing a mantra that she would chant to herself when she got into a situation where she was feeling angry about other people. They weren't being very Zen-like or they weren't, they were disrespectful, whatever it happened to be. To say, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong. I may have told you this story. Again, if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. And uh, so she would chant that mantra to herself just to allow herself to get over her anger and frustration dealing with people. And later I told her, I said, well, maybe you should start adding, I could be right, I could be right, I could be right, I could be right. It doesn't matter, matter really whether you're right or wrong in the situation. You could be right or you could be wrong. But what you do is what matters. And you can act in such a way that you're not basing it on whether you're right and they're wrong or you're wrong and they're right. You can act in ways that find, you know, find out more. Uh, the interview technique that I've sent out to some of you, where you can just interview another person and find out what's going on in there. You know, if we take the surface... Uh, the surface reaction, then we're always in that reactive stance. Zen encourages us to take the backward step, to step back, kind of consider it in a larger context. And that's, that's part of what meditation is. So if you can become patient with yourself on the cushion, and it takes a lot of patience, you're going to be a whole lot more patient with everybody else. It doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong <laughs> or that you're right. But you probably will do the right thing. You'll probably take the right action, more likely. So meditation is really the key to really just all kinds of enlightenment. Levels in, Zen, of in Zen, yeah. I, I think it's not. Meditation is described in all kinds of ways and has all kinds of purposes now in our culture. It's been a... It's been Americanized, you know, and that's not all. That's not all to the good. No, no. 
West but, uh, but the old countries, too, the way it was in the old countries, it wasn't great. I mean, it was like, that's what the monks do. That's not good. You know, meditation, Zen, Zen will find its revival in America, according to Matsuoka, but it will be do-it-yourself uh, lay practice. That's, that's where it of, will find its... Yep. That's kind of what it's become here. That's Everybody right. Doing it themselves and yeah, just throwing so the word you know, those of us in Zen are concerned that it's getting diluted and Americanized and co-opted and turned into a popular thing that it's not. You know, like everything else in America. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. We want everything convenient and at our fingertips. Yeah, yeah. So we're. I tend to be get my back up around those kind of issues because, again, I think it's something very important. And I don't want it to be um, defamed, is the word we use. Do not defame the three treasures, is the 10th precept. Um, I feel very much the same about yoga. It's so uh, yep. bastardized yep. here. Uh, yep. They call yep. yoga in India because it's so yep. fake. Turned into a commodity. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's not, doesn't, it's not making anybody better. Right. It's the point of yoga, really. And in Zen, it's like it's if it's turned into another do-gooder uh, cause, we're going to end the death penalty. We're going to re reform the government and so forth. Zen's going to lose its 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 essential center. You know, it, if it's turned into one of those, not that I'm against the not against the death penalty. It's just that it Zen lands in the middle. It doesn't take. It re recognizes in every cause there are at least two sides. And if you can't address both sides simultaneously, like Thich Nhat Hanh said, if you want to work for world peace, you have to be world peace. You mm -hmm. can't, you don't have a dog in the hunt. You can't take sides. That's the most difficult position of all. It's the tightrope walker, right? Yeah. Razor blade. Yeah. But I think that's, that's worth defending. Absolutely. So just uh, just before we finish off, we'll um, we'll mention the book, the original Frontier: A Serious Seeker's Serious Seeker's Guide to Zen. That's the that's fantastic cover. Well, next time we'll we'll get some we'll get some information on the cover because I've it's, I've um, I've been waiting. I've actually pre-ordered it from Amazon. It's still not here, so I've just downloaded it to the Kindle. They've sold um, out a couple of times. It's getting oh, good reviews and. Everybody's holding a everybody's holding a copy up apart from me, so <laughs> I, see, I think that'd be a good idea just to come on and just discuss discuss one of the chapters or discuss a couple of parts out of it. Um, yep. So the the book's out. If anybody wants to get involved in the meetings, there's the Facebook page as well. So uh, just jump onto Facebook. It's the the Diver Understanding Facebook page. Uh, if you've got any questions for Sensei, then just post them to the group as well, and we can yep. we can pass them on. So we'll we'll continue next month, Sensei, with chapter nine. Um, again, thank you very much for your time. So we really appreciate it. Um, we, we get so much out of these meetings. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next month. Everybody else, have a fantastic week. And we'll see you soon. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars, Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week.
Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.